Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a very special episode of FF Plus. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. But for this episode, we are also being joined by our fellow film critic from EveryMovieHasALesson.com, Don Shanahan. Good evening, everyone. So we are excited tonight to be chatting with Jordan Beck. He is the Chief Operations Officer for Fun Academy Media Group, as well as the 2D sequence director and a voice actor on the animated film Sergeant Stubby, an American Hero. Hey, Jordan, welcome to Feelin' Film. Hey, guys, thank you uh, so much for having me on. Yeah, we are really stoked to get to talk to you about this movie and kind of bring this to our listeners' attention. It was something that we actually had, we did not know about the movie until you messaged us which usually those are things that we don't really have our interest peaked, but we all kind of perked up when we saw what Sergeant Stubby was about and that he's a cute dog. And we were like, hey, we want to know more about this. And I got to say right up front, I think we are all super glad that we found this film. Right, guys? Everybody in agreement? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we all loved it. I watched it with my two teenagers. I think, Patrick, you watched it with your seven-year-old. How old Mm -hmm. is five? Seven, He's six. seven now. He's seven, seven. now. Uh, Don, did you get a chance to watch it with your kids? No, I have six and five. They're not super duper ready for that yet, but I think this is one that would easily go down for them. No problem. Yeah, so it's been a big hit with all of our families so far, um, and I think it's going to be awesome to get to talk to you about how it was made and what your passion is for this film. So, uh, listeners, just a quick backstory. Sergeant Stubby, an American hero, is the true story of a stray dog who ends up joining a new master on the battlefields of the First World War. And ultimately, he becomes the most decorated dog in American military history. He can have, he has 17 battles to his credit, over four campaigns, and a total of 18 months in service, which is a heck of a long time in a world war. So, yeah, we were all just stoked to learn about the history of Sergeant Stubby. Yeah, one of the things about uh, making a movie like Sergeant Stubby is um, there is no such thing as a spoiler when there's a Wikipedia page. But at the same time, like everything about World War One is kind of overshadowed in American popular culture by the more popular sequel, right? Like we all know World War Two. Um, we know the World War Two media. We know the World War Two story. We know. Uh, who the good guys and the bad guys are, because it's really easy to, you know, find a bad guy um, in World War II. But World War I was a conflict that was really different for America. And in a lot of ways, it, it's a story of firsts. Um, and, you know, we might kind of like get to that point in this conversation. But for us, we found the story of Sergeant Stubby while we were looking at doing a World War One centric property. The the filmmaker, the, the writer, director, and founder of our studio Fun Academy, Richard Lonnie, was a documentarian um, originally. And he uh, 
I was working at the National Infantry Museum in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, so it's a 190,000 square foot Smithsonian style themed attraction um, that had an IMAX theater. And Richard brought his World War II themed series, uh, The American Road to Victory, to my IMAX. And we started a friendship. And he said, you know, in about 10 years, the World War, uh, the World War I centennial is coming up, which – um, it, for those who are eagle-eared listeners, that was last year. Uh, so this actually started like almost a decade ago. Um, but Richard and I started working on a documentary about World War One that he really – and Richard um, is a British national who lives in France. So he definitely has a European perspective on all of this. But he spent a lot of his professional life in America. He really um, has a has a passion for American history and really wants to um, make American history accessible for Americans. You know, he has sort of like a, a European's view of how to make Americans understand or, or appreciate our significantly shorter in the grand scheme of things, but significant nonetheless um, part of world history. And so Richard's thought process was how do we tell the story of World War One? from an American perspective or from multiple American perspectives because it was such a short-lived conflict for us. And he started doing research and he found a number of amazing stories, including this one about a dog from Connecticut. And he realized that we could, the, the, the PBS documentary is great. You know, it's a wonderful art form. We've, we've all spent countless hours learning about very, you know, specific subjects through, through PBS documentaries. But he realized, huh, we could reach a much wider audience through animation without changing any facts. Um, certainly embellishing the narrative here and there as, as necessary, um, as with any good historical fiction. But through the art of animation, we'd be able to reach an audience that would never sit down and watch a multi-night PBS documentary special. So that's where Sergeant Stubby and American Hero really came from. And, you know, if we're going to go through the prob, uh, the process, I say problem, but go through the, go through the heartache of, uh, making an animated feature, why don't we establish a company to do this? Because nobody else is. There's nobody else who's really making animated features based on true stories like this. Um, we're really the first to do the, the based on a true story treatment to an animated feature. Um, you know, Pocahontas doesn't count. <laughs> yeah. Totally different thing. Like somebody, you know, said like, uh, you know, Pocahontas, yeah, well, willow trees can't sing. You know, yes, it is true that there was somebody named Pocahontas. Um, but that's about all we got there. Or, or somebody else said Mulan. Like, yes, it is true. There is a country called China. <laughs> um, you know, and they have a long, beautiful history. So that was that was kind of our impetus is like, how do we make a true story accessible to kids and how do we bring this period of, of world history, not just war history, but world history and the, you know, the understanding of how the world that we live in today came to be. Uh, and through this dog, we found an amazing vessel to do that. And we have you know further plans to, to continue that story. Yeah. As the, as the school teacher in the room, I really have to compliment you. Like um, it's World War One is a very difficult topic to really get into because like you said with world war ii there's just so much more media there's so much more film and footage of it with world war one short of peter jackson's documentary a year ago uh you know there's not a lot of like easy and accessible um footage you can show 
middle school students and high school students about this war. Um, because if you want to scare the crap out of them, you put all quiet on the Western Front. If you want to scare the crap out of them some more, you put 1917 on. But, uh, but I can't, I can't show middle schoolers and elementary school kids that kind of movie. So I, that's one of the things I must really compliment you on and, and, and ask more about is, um, you talked about making kind of this history and this war accessible. Kind of what was the, well, give us some more extra motivation you had about telling Stubby story, particularly with kind of education in mind as the as, a, as the middle school school teacher sitting here. That was the thing for me is like I, I saw this film blind. I didn't go into Wikipedia and look it up and anything like that. And um, I'm like, gosh, I can't wait to take this to a classroom sometime. Sure. Uh, one of the things that Fun Academy really believes is that history is for everyone. Now, there are parts of history that are a little more difficult to process at younger ages, you know, as with anything. in life. I mean, that's not just about history. That's about life in general. Um, there, there are elements of, of human existence that are difficult to process as you're younger and then you get older, you know, so you start off with, you know, things that, that you can understand and that you can grasp and that you can deal with. At the same time, children have more of a capacity for understanding hardship and learning, uh, from some of these things than I think we really recognize now. So we didn't want to, give World War One the babification route, right? You know, I mean, like, we'll put this in Mortal Kombat terms. You know, this isn't like <laughs> friendship moves or something. Yeah, yeah. There certainly is, there, there is loss and peril in our film, but it's loss and peril in a way that kids can understand and appreciate and isn't going to terrify them. You know, it's a way that, that kids can realize, uh, you know, the, the sacrifices that people make. Sacrifice is a universal concept. And it's a concept that kids of all ages can can understand. When we started making this film, my son was two and a half. Uh, so he's really grown up with Stubby. And he's actually uh, sleeping in his bed with a with a plush Stubby right now. Patrick uh, was one. Patrick, ever see, since he saw it, Patrick it was, was one. I'm a, I'm a dog person, first and foremost. I have two sitting outside on my office just waiting to get in. But because of noise, I can't let them in. But yes, I want a stubby plush right now. Okay, well, we, we've got them for you, Patch. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, that was one thing that we, we certainly are not trying to um, – to create something that is going to to scare children, obviously, and also not desensitize them either. It, I have it, to compliment the movie's balance on that department. You did a, you know, because World War One is tricky. And how how do you show the Germans? How do you show villains? How do you show you know shootings? How do you show gas? And you guys did just you know enough suggestion that kids know it's there and and the dangers and and the rigors of that. But you like you said, you approached it just in um with honesty, but also with with the right filters. I must really compliment you on that. Thank you. Thank you. I think, um, yeah, there's a, I guess candor is the right word. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a truthfulness and an honesty, but also not a salacious quality to what mm-hmm. we're trying to accomplish here. You know, the, you mentioned the gas attack and for anybody who hasn't seen this film, it's available on DVD on HBO right now. What's wrong with you? But if, if you haven't watched the film, our treatment of gas is very obviously inspired by, uh, Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. You know, the, the gas is, is very much treated as the, that sort of angel of death scene, the Passover scene in the Ten Commandments. Um, there are influences from everything to, you know, Paths of Glory is an influence in the film. Definitely saw Paths of Glory in the trenches. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was arguably the greatest World War One film or the, 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 you know, not anything against All Quiet on the Western Front or anything, but Paths of Glory, I think, is sort of the World War One film. 
leading into this. And we certainly took that to heart and was like, okay, so how do we make, not how do we make paths of glory for kids, but how do we take the history of paths of glory and turn it into a story that has resonance with kids and going back to the dog, um, this dog had a, had an amazing and diverse life. He isn't just a, a character of world war one. His, his life and career lasted into the, um, till 1926. Uh, he had a long full life after world war one, uh, completed. And so one of the things we realized also in creating fun Academy around stubby was we can use this dog who did so many amazing things. He went on vaudeville when he came home. Uh, he was a vaudeville star. He led victory parades around the country. He was named a lifetime member of the VFW, the American Legion, and the YMCA. He actually had a YMCA card that was good for three bones a day in a warm place to sleep. That's right. Uh, That's what we do. <laughs> I, work, I work at the Y, so. I'm nice. a- you, you give human people three bones a day? Well, no, I mean. You're sick, Aaron. You're I mean, sick. I'm saying, you know, we, you know, uh, anyway. You take care of people in very good ways and for yes. very good causes. Excellent. There you go. I worked at the Y my four years as well, so. I, uh, well, I, I should be going to the Y more often. <laughs> I was there tonight, my ankles are killing me. So, so yeah, Stubby was a member of the Y, and then, uh, his owner, Robert Conroy, um, was made a, a agent of the Bureau of Investigation, one of the early G-men, precursor to the FBI, while he was a student at Georgetown Law. So Stubby actually went with Robert Conroy as Conroy was setting up field offices during Prohibition. While a student at Georgetown Law, Stubby actually served as the mascot for the Georgetown Hoyas. Uh, and during that time, he would uh, go to pep rallies and football games and perform tricks during halftime shows. So Stubby is actually the first ever credited halftime performer. So Sergeant <laughs> <Wow>. Stubby. <laughs> I, I did not know all this. Po- you know Holy what this post history is telling me? This post history is telling me sequel. Oh, yeah. We're getting there. <laughs> so, yeah, Stubby, we realized that this is – we the, the movie uh, that exists right now was made specifically surrounding the World War One centennial and a way to engage American audiences and kids in particular in understanding this chapter of world history that people were going to be talking about. But the rest of his story is we can open – we can look at the first 25 uh, years, the first you know quarter of the 20th century through the eyes of a dog who really does serve as like a real-life Forrest Gump dog. Uh, and that's something that we thought was really, really special and really unique about his story and something that nobody else has really kind of kind of um, gone at. Yeah, I think the story of Stubby is, as a dog person, I just gravitated toward immediately. But I love the fact that you mentioned that the story is approachable to kids because there's a there's a, there's a challenge on the – faith-based side when you're talking about how do you teach the story of Jesus with all the craziness that happens with his life to someone who's five or six. And the Jesus Storybook Bible is probably the closest that you can get where it explains the stories in a way but doesn't necessarily pull punches. It just kind of redirects them in a way that feels like you can digest the story a little bit easier, but you still understand it and you understand the impact on it. And I think Stubby does this from the sake of understanding some of the impact of World War One and some of the casualties and in particular, I will say personally, the the armistice agreement and the ceasefire, I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was an actual scheduled ceasefire at 11 a.m. And at 9 o'clock that morning, there was still deliberate fighting. And my son, 
the six-year-old or seven-year-old at this point is like, why are they still fighting? And I said, honestly, I don't know. This is really tough. And so you get to a place where you're asking that question. And I love, love, love that you have a voiceover that asked that question. Because I was like, are you going to explain this? And and it wasn't really about the answer at that point. It was about the fact that you're recognizing that it's a question that needs to be asked. I'm really glad that you brought that part up. That was something that we actually had some difficulty with in the in the writing and the, the editing process because the ending of World War One. So for, for listeners who don't know, pay attention. There will be a test later. But so and World I will grade it. <laughs> everybody's getting a B. So World War One was declared over on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. And they did it at 11, 11, 11. So that way everybody would remember it was supposed to be a mnemonic device in the rest of the world. That mnemonic device is more honored in the UK and elsewhere. They have Remembrance Day or they celebrate Armistice Day. And you'll see in November, even in NFL games, everybody's wearing a little uh, paper red poppy, um, though nobody ever really explains why everybody's wearing a poppy on Veterans Day. In the U.S., Veterans Day is a bank holiday, but we do it kind of inverted because our saddest holiday of the year is actually, and, and again, I should clarify, holiday doesn't just mean a, like a happy free day. It's a, it's a day of, you know, it's a holy day. Like it's a, it's a day that is set aside for a particular purpose. So our saddest holiday in this country is Memorial Day. Right. Which happens in the spring at the beginning of summer when everything is wonderful and pool parties are great. And where the rest of the world celebrates the, the, the saddest holiday on 11-11, we have that set aside to honor all members of the military, particularly those who are still living in Veterans Day. At, but it's in a, a terrible time of year for a pool party or a barbecue. It, it's just this weird thing that we've kind of developed in, in the U.S. But um, to, to what you were saying, Patch, it's really interesting that you mentioned the biblical story of of Christ's death and resurrection there because our film is not a faith-based film and yet we were endorsed uh for all ages by the Dove Foundation so we're not a christian movie per se um we're it's it not any faith is necessarily represented other than in the general time and place i mean it's you know it takes place in connecticut in the 19 19- tens. So certainly there's an element of, of Judeo-Christian uh, morality in it. But beyond that, we're, we're not a faith-based film, and yet faith-based audiences have kind of been receptive to this period that we're depicting and to the manner in which we've done it. So, And I even mentioned that we were looking at things like the Ten Commandments as a, as a you know, comp. Um, so yeah, it, it's just kind of interesting that you go there, because I I don't know that we specifically thought about something like, you know, well, the resurrection is taught to kids, so certainly we can teach World War One. But I think that's where we wound up. I agree completely. And I, like Patrick, there was a lot in this movie that I kept kind of being shocked by um, that I was learning. I, I didn't go into it expecting that, to be honest. I went in with probably a bit of ego as an adult thinking, <laughs> well, I know World War One, but... Uh, everything with Seche Prey, and I'm probably pronouncing that completely incorrectly. You're good. You're good. Uh, but the, the French city, and that, that was the largest American battle of World War One. Like that was an informational piece for me and learning that that was this block point to protecting Paris 
Um, that was new, and and then it was great to get to see Patton roll in. And of course, I'm like, Patton, there's Patton, and my kids are like, what, huh? Who's Patton? And I had to have the jaw drop moment, of course, because they don't know who Patton is. They haven't seen the George C. Scott <laughs> movie, right? And so there is a lot of awesome embedded history that is woven so perfectly, so seamlessly into your storytelling. Um, and I was also, I was curious about what is accurate versus what is not. And you don't have to get into too much specifics, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but like relationally, you know, is there really a Gaston or was that a character that is created to show us relationships between, you know, the French and the American military and certain events that stubby actually participates in are there any that what is embellished versus what actually did stubby do no that's an awesome question so it comes down to the question when you're making a work of historical fiction um accuracy versus authenticity and we went with authenticity more than slavish historical accuracy for a couple reasons one you know it, it does have to be over in a period of time that kids can understand. So it's got to be over in less than an hour and a half, right? But the other part of that is because this wasn't as heavily a mediated war um, and the journalism that did exist was very, I mean, you think fake news is a new concept, just, you know, read about Hearst and Pulitzer. So there are a lot of gaps in the story. So what we did is we knew where Stubby, we knew the major beats, like we knew where Stubby entered combat at Chemin de Dam. We knew that he was uh, injured at Sesh Prey. We knew that, you know, that he was promoted at Marshville. So we knew like where he was going to wind up for the, for the major events. Then it became a question of how do we fill in the gaps? Like how do we make these, these major events get, how do we get from point A to point B? Um, one of the things and one of the reasons that we've focused uh, our company's future offerings, Stubby and Beyond, on true stories is it actually makes it a little bit easier when you know where you're going. You know, we're, we're not having to fully invent uh, every every step of these journeys. But uh, in this case, you asked about the characters. Um, none of the characters in the film, other than Stubby, obviously – his owner, Robert Conroy, um, his elder sister, Margaret, and uh, the the commanding general, uh, General Edwards, and Captain Patton are real. Everybody else is a composite. That being said, they're not inventions, they're composites. Um, so uh, Stubby and Conroy, the 102nd Infantry Regiment, was part of the 26th Yankee Division. 102nd is still an existent uh, unit in the Connecticut National Guard. The 26th Yankee Division was composed of all National Guard units from in and around New England. So it was all National Guardsmen. That meant that none of them were professional soldiers, um, other than a handful of the leaders who had served in things like the Spanish-American War uh, about 20 years earlier. Um, there, this were, These were guys from fields and factories. Um, they were volunteers. They were a lot conscripted, a ton of them immigrants, uh, because New Haven was a, was a huge, um, industrial center for immigrant labor in the early 20th century. So what we did is we created characters like Stubby and Conroy would have known, um, to, to make the, the narrative flow 
in a in a way that expeditiously. Um, but also to, to be totally honest to any budding filmmakers out there who have an idea of, you know, making a historical film, um, composite characters mean that you can make them do what you need them to do. Uh, you don't have estate clearances. Yeah. We've a composite character. We've talked a lot about that when we discuss biopics on the show about how composite yeah. characters are valuable because they help push the narrative. Yeah. Because if you were going, I, I, I think we, Aaron and I both nodded when you said authenticity versus accuracy. I think that sums up a successful biopic is authenticity over accuracy, at least putting it at a higher value. And what you have are these great characters that live in this narrative. I love the voice cast. I absolutely love Gerard Depardieu as, as Gaston. I smiled every time he was on screen. I love that he sings in it. This is fantastic. Helena Bonham Carter, wow, surprising me to see these what I would consider big names in this narrative. And then I see this this guy on the cast list that is also an animator, that is you as a, as a voice actor. <laughs> and it got me wondering from a technical standpoint, I, I love the art of voice acting because I think it's, it is an art form in and of itself. I mean, you're causing this kind of oral inflection to kind of create emotion. And um, I wanted to know, was this your first time doing voice acting? Have you had experience with that? And if it was your first time, what was that like to, to, to work alongside these other actors? Oh uh, yeah. So, um, for anybody who's not familiar, the A-list cast of our film is headlined by Logan Lerman, uh, Percy Jackson, Percy being a wallflower. Um, I can't wait to see, uh, his new show with Al Pacino that Jordan Peele has produced for Amazon. That looks really great. Um, but, uh, so Logan, what voices Stubby's owner, um, another thing to point out for everybody is that Stubby doesn't talk in our film. This is not a talking animal movie, which is um, great. That was that was another. We we had friends in the industry at you know Pixar and DreamWorks and elsewhere who we were speaking to, and they said, okay, so who's going to voice Stubby? And like a, a dog, <laughs> a foley artist is going to voice Stubby because the real Sergeant Stubby did all these amazing things in his life without saying a word. So it'd be disingenuous to put human words into his mouth at this point. Um, but yeah, so the headline cast is Logan Lerman, Helena Bonham Carter. I mean, you, you, I can't say enough wonderful things about her career um, uh, as his elder sister, who never appears on screen. Mm -hmm. She was actually added in. Now, Conroy was raised by his elder sister. His parents died when he was young, and he had an elder sister and then two younger sisters who were twins. Um, so he was the only boy in a house of, of sis siblings. Um and early on, a first draft of the script was passed around to our team. And one of the one of the women on our team said, it's great. Where are the women? Um, because it was written, you know, th that was a good point. That was a like a, a bunch of guys sat around and wrote a wrote a war movie for kids and forgot that representation matters. Um, so go back to the research and find the character of Margaret Conroy or Margaret O'Brien, actually, at the time and realized that we could get in some of the more informational, like the direct educational portions through voiceover narrative through letters and journals. So we introduced the character of Margaret to provide that sort of educational point to give modern audiences context for this conflict, but also, yeah, add in representation and a little bit of that, um, that warmth. She was actually cast based off of uh, Cinderella, where she 
voice the fairy godmother who's just the narrator for the beginning sure. the the only sure. movie that she's not like a villain or I know. Exactly. crazy <laughs> I know, right <laughs> um, my biggest compliment for helena is the fact that um just her existence as the narrator as a person who didn't wikipedia the story because it's robert not telling the story and it's the sister you're like oh crap is he gonna make it or not because i'm hanging on her every word like oh gosh i hope her brother made it oh she's not telling us posthumously you know like there's a bit of suspense thanks to her again warmth performance but just the, the you know she has all this history she knows all these things she's reading all these letters you're like dang it are these old letters that we'll never find out about from robert and i'm on the edge of my seat just hoping he makes it not to yeah. mention just watching 1917 quite a few times over the last I month. know. <laughs> you know, like Richard Mann's not going to meet his brother again now. Run, Robert, run. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, so that was that was part of the the Helena cast. Actually, we got her through um the composer for the film was Patrick Doyle, who is Kenneth Branagh's composer of choice. He has a couple Oscar nominations, amazing stuff. Worked with Helena numerous times including on Cinderella and we actually hired Patrick first and um Richard was saying to Patrick, "Well, we'd really love somebody to do kind of like what Helena did on Cinderella. And he's like, well, you want me to call her? <laughs> uh, Let's get somebody like Helena. Why don't we just get Helena? That'd be great. Yeah, why don't we just get <laughs> Helena then? Uh, although I do have to brag, my wife provo- performed the scratch vocals for all of the storyboard artists because when you do an animated film during the storyboard, you got to have all the scratch for them to draw to before you get the production. And Patrick did say, uh, he composed the score to my wife's voice uh, and said, do we really need Helena? Can't we just put her name on the poster? <laughs> Uh, and I said, that's not how it works, but I, I will tell my wife that uh, she is now officially Helena Bonham Carter. Almost featuring um, Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, almost. Yeah. All, that's, that's her LinkedIn bio now. Okay. I, I'm, I'm occasionally Helena. And then you asked about Gerard Depardieu, and yeah, the, the 102nd was uh, mirrored by a French regiment the entire time they were in country, so we created this sort of like stand-in for the French, and, and what better character to be the French stand-in than the ultimate in in French performers who, you know, is not cartoonishly over the top. I mean, he's not Pepe Le Pew. You know, he's he's Gerard Depardieu. He is what he is. He's he's a force of nature. And he's he very gentle. He comes across as very gentle in his conversations. And things like the singing uh, he knew that the, the song was written in the script, but he already knew it when he got in there and started just injecting it in places. There are some wonderful moments where he just knew that knew everything that he was doing. But once you get to that point, all right, so you got the headlines on the poster, you know, so you got the big names on the poster. Who fills out the rest of an animated cast? Well, you could do what another studio might do where they've got you know a celebrity in every voice role and there's certainly a benefit to that because it might bring in their fans you know but at the end of the day are you you know particularly noticing um or is like is jenny slate bringing that many more people to the property she's a wonderful voice actress but for us as an independent studio existing sort of on this you know other path we didn't feel the need to go get a celebrity for every single role right because sometimes you get to those moments and all you hear is the celebrity, not the character. You're like, oh, that's Jonah Hill. You, you know? start playing the name game. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And this is no, I love you, Jenny Slate. You're wonderful. You're in everything that my son watches on a daily basis. You know, and like he doesn't notice, though. He doesn't he doesn't have that level of awareness. That's a game that's played for adults more than it's played for kids. So when we were doing the the initial 
casting on this, we started by doing our table read. I collected a group of actors from around Columbus, Georgia, and I said that this started sort of out of my relationship with Richard at Fort Benning. Fort Benning's in Columbus, Georgia, about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. And so I collected a group of actors, the State Theater of Georgia is here, and you know some other friends from the local music industry. Patch, to answer your question, I've been a public speaker my whole life and a musician and performer for my whole life uh, and done theater and done some, you know, like student film type work, never voice acting before, nor did I expect to start with this, but I was comfortable in front of a mic. And so I got my friends who were also comfortable either on stage or in front of a mic to record a scratch vocal track that we figured, oh, yeah, we'll throw this away at the end and then we'll, you know, go out and we'll get Jonah Hill and everybody else to, to fill in the rest. And then once the animators started working and they're starting to create the um, create the animations for these characters based on what they're hearing in our voices, they realize, like, we don't need to do that. Not for this story. This story is about the dog and the dog doesn't talk. So other than those those few iconic performances or, or signature performances of Helena Gerard and Logan, we just stuck with the the local actors who had performed the scratch track and done, you know, a, a, I'd like to think a decent job at breathing some life into these characters without it becoming playing the, the movie name game. Well, that's exactly how I felt after watching this. I was, uh, you know, just candidly speaking i i think the movie did exactly what it was supposed to i did not recognize um the main character at all i did not put two and two together until i saw the um the cast list i was like oh my gosh perks of being a wallflower there's charlie yeah didn't even think about that and i love that because you don't need that don you made a great point that you don't if you're telling a story specifically about an animal that doesn't talk you then start distracting from that story. You start taking away from the impact of that story by then populating it with a lot of oral uh, jewelry of sorts. And and I think that everything worked really well. You had just enough that made you smile like, ah, yeah, there it is. But even, even Gerard and Helena were very much unobtrusive. They didn't come across as just really overly dramatic. It was just very casual. As she was narrating, it felt perfectly like it fit like okay yeah we're moving into this next piece and and she fit perfectly there because it made sense in a world filled with men it was a nice little accent to my ears to hear a female voice that actually that mattered it wasn't just for ear candy it was because she had a purpose that he did have an older sister that she was important but you guys found a way to really balance the entire voice cast so that nobody felt like they stood out Gerard definitely comes in with the subtlety of a train crashing into the world. <laughs> that's how he lives life, right? And and so his level of bombast actually is important to his character. Um, I actually like the, the, um, the, the other females in the story, the, the ladies in the town, when Stubby saves them from the gas attack. I really like how you use them. And it, instead of the typical war story where there is some element of romance brought into that. I mean, there there is obviously some cute flirtation stuff that happens with Robert, but I just I really appreciated how they were handled there and what they brought into the story. It felt much more natural to me than this idea that women were just, you know, crazily throwing themselves at American soldiers that came into this town. Like that's what we've been brought up in, war films sure. to believe. And this was so much more wholesome 
<laughs> um, like you say, you know, for kids and it, and it fits and it just, it felt more realistic as well. You know, there's something else that I want to point out about that since you bring it up. Nobody ever really notices this part, but, um, when they go into that village, you realize that it, there are no men in the village. You know, that was something that was done intentionally because all of the men of France were, had been in the trenches for three years. So we, we definitely did a, a nod to that part of the story. But you're exactly right, and thank you for noticing that we didn't, you know, in not every movie needs a love story in it. <laughs> and that's that's one of those classic Hollywood tropes. No one will see it if there isn't a romantic element. And, I'm, you know, this is a movie about a dog. Where's his love story? That's what I was going to say. If you're going to have a love story, I want to see <laughs> Stubby's relationship. Yeah. Like, Stubby's not going to go chasing poodles around Paris. That would That would be a complete anathema to what we're trying to accomplish here. Something else that I noticed in the the overall like techno te- technical part of the movie was the way in which you had two distinct animation styles and there's something to be said about the fact that you have this breaking up visually and i i noticed um as we were doing some research that were you behind the 2d animation in terms of the, the i guess the transition pieces was that was that your yeah. work? Yeah, that was that was me. I, well, I I mean, I say it was my work. I was in charge of the team that did it, and okay. the team that did it was from an animation studio. Um, the so our company is headquartered between Kinsale, Ireland, and Columbus, Georgia. But the animation itself was done through a subsidiary of Technicolor in Montreal called Micros. Okay. Micros Animation. Uh, if you look at the credits of DreamWorks as Captain Underpants and the credits of Sergeant Stubby, it's almost the exact same people. Wow. Um, so Micros did The Little Prince for Netflix. They did Captain Underpants for DreamWorks. Uh, and then they did Sergeant Stubby for Fun Academy. The 2D work was done by another uh, Montreal-based company called Tutan Cartoon or TTK or Ka if you're in, in Montreal. But so shout out to those guys. What we wanted to do there was again, because this isn't a blood and guts, you know, this isn't, this isn't war porn, right? You know, this is, this is a a movie for kids, but you can't do a kid's movie without, about a war without showing the war in some way, shape or form. So I was asked to help come up with the, the visual representation for the war part of this. Now we've all seen your classic history channel style documentary where you got a map and you got a red line and you got a bunch of little flags, right? And it's effective. It works. But one of the things I was charged with is how do we get that information across and make it cinematic instead of, you know, like, uh, oh, we just saw this on TV and that'll work. How do we make it unique and cinematic? Um, and so if going back to the fact that the 26th Yankee Division and the 102nd Infantry Regiment were from New England. So was Milton Bradley and the Parker Brothers. So uh, in the same period. So it actually occurred to me, what if, um, and World War One was also the beginning of mass printed propaganda. Um, the propaganda posters of World War One are, are works of art in and of themselves. Uncle Sam was invented for World War One. Also cheaply mass printed propaganda sheet music came out at that time. Uh, we use actually one of those songs in the film. It's called How You Gonna Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Paris. That's the song that plays during the Paris segment. So using that propaganda and the history of board games, we realized, all right, so what if we took propaganda artwork and like vintage board games, 
like, what if we turned instead of doing it as, um, you know, just little flags moving on a map? What if we showed the mass movement of troops as a game of risk? Is that disrespectful? I don't think so. You know, I think that it's conveying again for the for the audience that we're telling the story to. It conveys the the scope and the scale of the destruction of World War One without focusing on you know some of the some of the more grisly bits. So it was sort of a visual shorthand. Absolutely, and one of the things I loved about that was that you are getting more information from those visuals. I mean, the first thing you are taught in design school is show or tell, don't do both. But what I think you do here is there's a great marriage between Helena's narrative and the propaganda S 2d animation. But I think if you were to mute the sound and you were just to watch those transition sequences, you could get what's happening, particularly when the, when the French were overtaking the Germans that sequence there near the end. And I think there was one where it was the opposite earlier in the film. I, I love seeing that. It reminded me a lot of Indiana Jones and the transition sequences there, which um, when you say Milton Bradley and the board game pieces and risk all that is like, Oh yeah, totally. I can see that too. But I was also describing this to some friends and both of them when I was describing and they were said, is that like, um, is that like Valiant Hearts? The, the 2D animation game about World War One. I, I was like, I don't know what that game is. And so I'm it's looking it up <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to own this game now just for the sake of watching this 2D story yeah. play out because both of them said the 2D animation actually increased their emotional connection to the game. It helped support that as opposed to taking it away. And I felt the same way about these transition sequences because it kept me engaged on the education side at the same time while I was being entertained. I've actually purposefully never played Valiant Hearts or Battlefield 1 just to avoid uh, uh, accusations of plagiarism. But I have heard um, that they they both help reinforce some of the ideas. I mean, look, we're not the only ones who had the idea of how do we make World War One palatable at the same time. Wonder Woman came out the year before Stubby did, you know, so and, and Peter Jackson's movie came out six months after, but was certainly in production during. Um, and 1917 is out right now. So the idea of, of bringing World War I into the global consciousness is not something that we invented. But I think that the way that we've done it and the audience that we were targeting with it is slightly different than, you know, your Sam Mendes wasn't going for like eight year olds with, with how to make them understand World War I. But it's interesting that a lot of us who have been doing this have come up with similar visual cues and tricks. And some of those are historically based. I mean, you're going to if you're making a period movie, it's going to look somewhat like the period. But some of those, I think, also might be a little bit of, of uh, you know, using the same sort of visual shorthand um, because it just makes sense. And it's just the, the easiest way to convey the, you know, the, the, the geopolitical ramifications of World War One were many and varied. And ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, in in a standard film like this. What we do have time for, what we need people to have time for, is to get this film in front of people's eyes. So um, what kind of challenges have you faced going about of independent distribution here in the modern era? And how can, again, how can we get this in front of more people? Well, 
Um, so the film Sergeant Subbing American Hero was uh, the first theatrical release for Fun Academy Media Group, our U.S. distributor uh, distribution subsidiary is Fun Academy Motion Pictures. So that's what you see at the beginning of the film. We had wide theatrical distribution across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we actually had commitments from all of the major exhibitors, all of which were honored. If you are distributing a film uh, independently, there are a couple things that you need to know about that. First of all, uh, my biggest bit of wisdom to impart is don't open a movie the same time as an Avengers movie. That'll that'll hurt because when you're making a theatrical film, it's a real estate game. There is a finite number of screens. And when Disney and Marvel do something like move the release date of Avengers Infinity War up by a week, it causes Warner Brothers to move the release date of Rampage up by two weeks so they can make their gross. And they might just drop the rock and a monkey on top of a sweet little film about World War One. So our release date was the same day as Rampage. Uh, it was also the same day that Wes Anderson and uh, Fox Searchlight took Isle of Dogs wide. Um, oh, no. Oh, God. Right. So there were two uh, dog cartoons in uh, in theaters at the same time. And Rampage spent about $130 million advertising the release date change. The The reality is this, though. I mean, like, that's, you know, uh, you know, that's not an oh, poor me in this. The reality is that when you're distributing a film, and I won't get into all of the finer details of film distribution, although I'm happy to uh, anytime somebody wants, but distributors have to pay something called a virtual print fee to get an exhibitor, like a theater, to hit play on the movie the first time. So, all right, you get... Uh, you get 1,800 screens committed. As the distributor, I now have to pay about a grand. We'll average it to a grand a piece for each of those exhibitors to hit play on my movie. When you're releasing something like Rampage or Infinity War, you don't really notice that grand per screen because what's an extra $3 million on top of your $160 million P&A, right? For us to have that many exhibitors and that many screens be really excited about a new voice in uh, in distribution and a new type of content and really, really excited about this this way of reaching kids in a different way, uh, but you still got to pay us to hit play. And that was the, the reality of the, the business just, you know, meant that we wound up spending a lot of money to get the film shown but not enough to compete with the big boys who were, you know, like siphon, sucking all the oxygen out of the air for us. Right. So we came out in theaters um, and then we promptly left them. But because we are an independent studio and we have maintained strict control over our property um, and making deals to get it available to our audience as necessary. Um, we struck a deal with Paramount Pictures for home media distribution. Um, originally, we were having some problems getting it through to iTunes, Amazon, all those other things. But, you know, Paramount came through and saved the day for us on that. Um, we are available on HBO. Uh, so if you have HBO now, HBO Go, you can uh, stream the film through there. You can buy it on, you know, like I say, Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, uh, all the all the usual suspects. I think really and truly, though, like sales pitch aside, the the getting new voices in the the global film industry will only happen if people see them and talk about them. 
And that's one of the reasons that I reached out to you guys because, you know, we've been listening to your show. I've been following you guys on Twitter. We've interacted a little bit. And I thought, you know, I think that I think that feel and film might understand this is something a little bit different. You know, I look, I saw Infinity War on opening day, same as everybody else, you know, so it's not like I can be mad at them for moving their release date up. I'm still part of part of understanding that that's the way the exhibition business works now. And we're playing in the same pool, but we're playing a different game. Um, and that's, I think, something that's important to realize is that there are filmed entertainment is so much. I mean, there, there's so much that constitutes what filmed entertainment is, what movies can be, what TV can be these days, what, what a video game can be. I mean, my God, you know, I can't tell you how many hours I've logged in Skyrim versus how much, you know, time I've spent in movie theater this year. So, you know, I think that we're just trying to, to present something and keep it available to folks in a way that can be accessible to, to everybody going forward. Well, you know, that's kind of a perfect segue because with your approach for accessibility going forward, one of the things that was really interesting about this project is that it's not just one movie that you made and are kind of just done. Like, okay, we did this cool thing and now we're going to move on. It seems like you are really committed to continuing this method of storytelling for educational purposes and even specifically stubby because you have this thing called the stubby club or the stubby squad. I guess it is right. Uh, Alliteration always for the win. And from what I can see, it's, so it's a premium membership platform and it, and it has, we got a chance to play around in it and it was, really cool there's comics which were a lot of fun to read uh, activities you can do for your kids there was um the of course the store with the amazing and very affordable stubby plush by the way so what are you trying to do with the stubby squad and what do you want to do in the future so the stubby squad's goal is um after our theatrical release and you can see this on our Rotten Tomatoes or, or Amazon reviews or whatever. But the people who have seen the film really, really enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I take that as a personal win. But I also, you know, um, I, I like to think that people are coming to that not just because, you know, they're they have an agenda themselves. I They just like the movie. They appreciate that there's something new and different there. So because we had such a vocal social media and, and audience response, we decided to um, launch something called the Stubby Squad to invite our fans to basically be a part of our ongoing efforts. Um, there is an element of sort of a Patreon aspect to it, um, sure. It is a $49.99 annual membership, so it's a one-time payment of less than $50 for the entire year of your subscription, which goes directly into creating new content, both for the Stubby Squad platform and for our ongoing, uh, you, you know, we kind of talked about sequel possibility um, and something that we're working on right now. Actually, a stubby TV series is the next thing on the immediate horizon um, because we realize that, yeah, there is a hole in the market for this kind of um, information rich content. You know, I, I hesitate to call us a straight edutainment brand, but I, I like to say that we're sort of the, the halfway point between Pixar and PBS. Like that's that's where we want to be. Um, it's information risk, uh, information rich content with moral integrity and hopefully engender some intellectual curiosity in, in audiences of all ages. So what the Stubby Squad is, 
is yeah, you are you are becoming a part. You're having exclusive access to the filmmakers. You're basically with us in the studio as we gear up on uh, on future projects. Some of the things that I was mentioning, you know, even if you don't have kids, um, but you are a, a keen fan of film or a student of animation, or you want to understand a little bit more how the sausage is made. Look, we've just been through that grinder, um, and we're happy to impart that knowledge with everybody. Um, who, who wants to know, but also going back to our history is for everyone mantra. Um, how do we enhance the, um, enhance the, the, the quality of not only the storytelling, but the quality of the experience after the credits have rolled. So we've created original content that sort of addresses that one of our, our first flagship, um, original series is sort of a short form webisode. So five to 10 minute episodes called in the paw prints of history, where the director Richard Lonnie actually traveled across France last summer and visited or followed the exact path of Sergeant Subby and visited all the real locations. So in that show, what we're doing is we're showing our animated version next to the real version today, next to the tens of thousands of uh, megabytes of imagery we found from the First World War era. So we have photos and video, like hand-cranked movieolas um, from that era that we've been able to find so we can show you what it really looked like, how it looks today, and how that informed our animated storytelling while taking the, the idea of um, making educational media accessible to kids even further. Like this is a travel documentary that's aimed at kids. Um, and, you know, Donna... I, I hope that it's something that works for you. Oh, very much so. I mean, just dabbling in it and seeing what you're talking about, that is rich, valuable content that can go a long way, finding the right audience and spreading to the right places. And like you said, just accessible. I Like I said at the beginning, I have a hard time, um, even at a middle school socialist level, bringing things that are palatable to my, to my millennial students, but at the same time um, – you know, clean enough that I can show in, like I said, I can show in school. This is perfect. And it's been just such a nice thing to discover and find. Um, when it comes to Rotten Tomatoes, you'll have a new review on the positive side very, very soon. I, I, I waited for this interview before getting my review up, but it'll be there soon. Oh, awesome. And mm -hmm. yeah, you know, you mentioned the comic strips, like the comic strip actually exists outside the paywall. So you don't have to be a paid member to, to get twice weekly comics that are done by um, Scott Christian Sava, who wrote for Spider-Man and he created a film called, uh, Animal Crackers a couple years ago, which is another great story. Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, um, Danny DeVito animated film that is a, is a great story. But yeah, so Scott has uh, has created this comic strip for us. The only time that Stubby has been allowed to talk, we told him, all right, if you're making a, a comic, you can give him a, a speech bubble. But it has to be thoughts. Can't actually be speaking. So Stubby gets thought bubbles there. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, to, to sort of, I alluded to this at the very beginning, so any of you dear listeners who are still with us. The World War One era, this is the first time in American history when our nation deployed soldiers en masse like this. Fifty years before World War One, we were shooting at each other in this country. And then it went to, okay, well, I guess we're still going to be American, but we're not really American. We're from Alabama. We're from Minnesota. We're from New York. We're from California. So World War One, yeah, there was a Spanish-American War, which is a smaller scale thing, the Philippine incursion, again, smaller. Uh, but World War One was the first time in our country's history that we said, all right, everybody, you're wearing one uniform, you're flying under one 48-star flag, and you're going overseas to help our allies. Now, cut to today, 
19 years into the global war on terror and counting. Um, that's kind of what we do, right? We deploy, our military deploys. But this is a first generation that ever had to do that, which meant that they were also the first generation who ever had to come home. So our, uh, our second film is going to focus on the homecoming period when these guys get home and all of a sudden, uh, within a year after Stubby and Conroy returned home, women could vote. There were more cars, cars than horses on the road and you couldn't legally buy a beer. Whole world changed while they were gone. And that's when they went on vaudeville. Also in 1919, when they were on vaudeville, the first syndicated animated character came out, Felix the Cat. So like cartoons were invented while they were on vaudeville. Um, then, like I said earlier, they, they went, uh, they were G-men during prohibition. So it's really a, a fascinating time that sets up the world we live in today. Right now, we're actually working before all of that on a TV series that will be a prequel to the first film. So before he was a hero, he was a stray on the streets of a world that was in transition. You know, the modern world we live in today really kind of came into existence in this early 20th century period when things like cars and phones and electricity were, were becoming the standard. And so we've created a, a series in collaboration with, again, Scott Sava and then a writing team of Audrey Taylor and David Wise. And David Weiss was the co-creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and wrote uh, Batman the Animated Series, um, wrote for them like the origin of the Riddler. He wrote for Transformers. Um, so basically, yeah, like our childhood uh, is represented when I look at David's page. And we're working with him right now on creating this animated series that's sort of um, sort of a, an introduction to the early 20th century, but also an action adventure series. You know, how do we... How do we show that that era good and bad? You know, this is an era when child labor had just been made illegal, but there were street orphans. Like watch things like Newsies, you know, and you've got like the, the roving band of street urchins and the cops who are chasing them down. Or watch Charlie Chaplin movies. Um, so we're doing this sort of like Chaplin Newsies inspired uh, story again, featuring Stubby as the, the center point to bring that period of history alive. There are so many I'm just getting excited just hearing you talk about this because there are so many challenges and so many exciting things that could come from this. Like I'm, I'm almost picturing the next 15 to 20 years of a reimagine, not reimagining, but a retelling of history and not even from the standpoint of a pooch, but with a value add of understanding history in a different way. Not again, not reimagining it, not rewriting but retelling it in a way that a new generation of people, not just kids, but my age group, those that grew up with the page-turning history books that tell us what we know now, only part of the story, allows for the opportunity not to just find your niche as a studio, but to add value to the world of art, creativity, and storytelling. Absolutely. I, I I really appreciate hearing that. I mean, I grew up loving history because my family was from California and I grew up in rural Georgia and we drove across the country a dozen times. And you get an appreciation for how people live and, and the, you know, unique things that make, um, this particular, I mean, focusing on American history, but you can say the same for everywhere in the world. You know, what makes history important and unique is, the people who were there and, and the people who are still in those areas um, and the stories that exist, 
you know, history, when you hear kids who say, I don't like history, it's like, man, no, you, you do like history. You don't like your social studies book. Because if you, if I ask you what you did last summer and you tell me that's history, dude, it's a story that happened. And that's what we're trying to do is make boil history down from important men and names and dates and make it stories of people and the lives that they lived. And hopefully, like you just said, Patch, it'll open a new door because you learn if you have an interest in the early 20th century because you grew up loving Stubby, then someday you're going to want to see 1917. You know, you're going to want to go back to All Quiet on the Western Front. And that's awesome. I, I relish the moment that that's correct for you. Um, but you're not going to get to there if you don't start somewhere. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for being on. We appreciate you taking time to share with us not only about the movie, but really about some of the creative process and how all of this came to be. We are absolutely looking forward to the future of your studio and what all is going to come out of this. It's just it, it's an exciting time to be creative, and we are really glad that you and your team are a part of that creative process. Yeah, I can't thank you guys enough for uh for taking the time to talk and engaging in this conversation it's been good and that'll do it for this episode of ff plus uh, coming up in just a few days we'll continue our love for makoto shinkai as we walk through his latest feature weathering with you i know aaron's still excited about that and then following that later next week will be our coverage of bong joon ho's parasite as chosen by our faithful patrons so stay tuned for that and we'll talk soon everyone hey everyone thanks again for listening if you enjoyed the show we'd love to hear from you you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.